everyone. Welcome to Working Class Heroes Radio. My name is Khadija, and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight, we have an incredibly important and special episode dedicated to the story of Prakash Churaman that our correspondent Julian will be covering. Prakash is a 21-year-old currently incarcerated at Rikers Island Correctional Facility. The circumstances of his case are troubling, so we'd like to share what we've learned with you all. But first, we'll go to Danny and Lupita for headlines. Indigenous Peoples Day was recognized in two states and seven cities this year. This past Monday, the state of Virginia and Ohio, as well as seven cities, instituted Indigenous Peoples Day to replace Columbus Day celebrations. In 1992, Berkeley, California was the first locality in the country to recognize the day. Today, 12 states and hundreds of cities recognize Indigenous Peoples Day. In the last decade, there's been growing consciousness about the legacy of Christopher Columbus's role in the brutal colonization of the Americas, as well as present-day issues Indigenous communities face, from lack of clean water, food and medical resources on reservations, to the ongoing violation of land treaties meant to protect Indigenous land. Here at Working Class Heroes, we want to recognize that we are based in New York City, which is originally and presently the land of the Indigenous Lenape people. In Latin America, Indigenous peoples continue to fight growing state repression. Here in the U.S., ICE is now using lawless tactics to ramp up arrests and deportation of immigrants. Over the last week, there have been alarming reports of ICE presence in New York City. ICE agents and immigration courts were forced to slow down arrests and deportations as cities shut down for quarantine. However, ICE agents began to resume targeted raids in major cities beginning in July. Those cities include Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, and San Francisco, among others. From July to August, over 2,000 people were detained, and 100 more have been detained in September. In New York, ICE agents have begun to impersonate NYPD officers to carry out arrests. In response, grassroots organizations like Queens Neighborhoods United and Protect Sunset Park organized Know Your Rights outreach efforts to spread legal information to vulnerable families. Mayor Bill de Blasio demanded that ICE agents stop this illegal practice over Twitter. However, activists expressed outrage over the lack of policy initiatives to keep ICE out of the city from his administration. And in Pennsylvania, ICE has begun to use billboards to target undocumented immigrants. The billboards feature photographs and personal information of immigrants targeted for deportation. While the billboards feature people who have been charged with a crime, advocates point out that this obscures whether there was a conviction, meaning many of those people could be innocent of the crime or otherwise criminalized for nonviolent infractions. A recent study by the Journal of Crime and Justice has demonstrated that there is no link between undocumented immigrant populations and increased crime. In local news, Indigenous, Black, and Brown activists occupied a construction site to stop a fracking pipeline in Brooklyn. On Thursday morning, over two dozen activists with Frack Out of Brooklyn, an Indigenous, Black, and Brown-led organization, took direct action to block construction of a fracking pipeline being built by National Grid across North Brooklyn. Activists are demanding a full stop to the North Brooklyn Pipeline Project, which community members say will run below schools, daycares, and residential areas. More broadly, they demand a complete stop to the use of fossil fuel and fracking pipelines. Today, protesters rallied in Washington Square Park to address the budget deficit caused by the COVID recession by taxing billionaires and defunding the police. This past June, the New York City Council passed a budget that Mayor Bill de Blasio and Speaker Cory Johnson claimed was a historic step towards defunding the police. In fact, not a single police officer is facing a job loss under the current budget, even as 22,000 city workers are at risk of being laid off due to the deficit. According to the group Americans for Tax Fairness, New York's 118 billionaires saw their wealth increase by $77 billion just during the first three months of the pandemic. That's five times greater than New York State's projected $13 billion deficit for the coming year. Meanwhile, the NYPD has come under fire for its brutal handling of recent protests. Human Rights Watch released a report finding that police planned in advance to assault and issue mass arrests to a loud but peaceful June 4th protest in the Bronx, 
where police kettled 300 protesters before storming them with batons and kicks and arresting almost 90% of the crowd. Finally, to conclude headlines this week, we report on yet another senseless death at Rikers Island jail complex. On the morning of Friday, October 9th, 27-year-old Christopher Cruz died in Rikers Island, where he was being held on bail for $1,000. The Legal Aid Society has called for an investigation into his death. Last year, New York State eliminated cash bail for most offenses except for violent felonies. But after backlash from the police, prosecutors, and Governor Cuomo, many of those reforms were rolled back this spring. Now the population in jails like Rikers Island is rising for the first time in over a year, putting more people like Christopher Cruz in life-threatening situations simply because they cannot afford to pay their bail. Cruz's public defender had requested bail funds from NYC COVID bailout to get Cruz released. But faced with a growing number of costly bail requests, the mutual aid group was unable to help Cruz in time. Organizers with NYC COVID bailout expressed their condolences for Cruz and denounced the fact that, quote, district attorneys and judges intentionally set bail higher than working class New Yorkers can pay. We at Working Class Heroes also extend our condolences to the loved ones of Christopher Cruz and to everyone caught up in New York City's cruel jail system simply because they can't afford bail. And that's it for headlines this week. Change is Gonna Come by Sam Cook. You're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM and also streaming on WBAI.org. After a recent episode on the reopening of criminal courts in New York City, we asked listeners to call in with their stories. One of these calls came from Prakash Turaman, a 21-year-old fighting to prove his innocence from inside of Rikers Island Correctional Facility. Now, on to our correspondent, Julian, who will be covering his story. During some of our past shows, we have publicized our Google Voice phone number, and we ask the public to call us and leave us a short message if they have a story they'd like us to follow up on or any tips on any story we're covering. Anything like that, really. The last time we shared the number was for a show we did on the reopening of criminal court back in July, and we got a call from a young man who's stuck in jail on Rikers Island. This is a clip from the message he left us. Hi, um, my name is Prakash Sherman. I am, um, currently incarcerated on Rikers Island. I was was arrested in December 2014 for a crime I did not commit, and I'm still, to this day, uh, awaiting a fair trial. It's been almost six years now. Um, I was arrested at the age of 15. I'm now 21 years old. And basically, like, I've been voiceless and silenced from the day my freedom was taken from me. For the last six years, I've been experiencing nothing but injustice and inequality. I need your help, please. At least to help me get my voice and my story out there. We decided to take up his story, 
I connected with his support group, and I scheduled an interview with Prakash. In the meantime, we did some research on his case and found very few articles written on his story. But to summarize it, back in 2014, three men staged a home invasion in Jamaica, Queens. The robbery turned deadly when shots were fired, resulting in the death of 21-year-old Taquan Clark. Taquan's uncle, Jonathan Legister, was in the home and was shot twice. One of the assailants was also shot, leaving behind DNA evidence that was traced back to 28-year-old Elijah Gao. The other two assailants escaped, but later on through a police investigation, Prakash, at the age of 15, was arrested at his home and charged with being part of the home invasion after he confessed to the crime. Four years later, in 2018, Elijah Gao went to trial first and was quickly found guilty, being sentenced 65 years to life. Not much later, Prakash was also found guilty and sentenced nine years to life at the age of 19. The third assailant remained at large, but was eventually identified as Jonathan Wells, who was already serving time in prison for another unrelated charge. So, a straightforward case, right? Well, not really. I was really looking forward to making sense of this case, and when our appointment was due, Prakash called me. Hello, this is a free call from... An inmate at New York City Department of Correction. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. Hello? We spoke over several calls since he can only speak for 6 minutes to 15 minutes at a time. One of my first questions to him was about his experience of his case. This is how Prakash recalled it to me. I come home. Now I'm home with my mother. We're in the basement apartment that we live in in um, Jamaica, Queens. And about approximately, I want to say like two or three weeks, I get arrested um, for the death of my best friend. Something I didn't even know about until I was apprehended from my apartment and taken to the 113 precinct where I was interrogated for hours and, um, you know, eventually coerced and manipulated into just giving a confession. Mind you, all of this, I'm, I'm 15 years old at the time. My mother was president, but, you know, my mother, she's illiterate. She doesn't have no education, no, no nothing, no education background, nothing. So she, just, she folded just as well as I did, basically. But um, for the last six years, I've been here fighting to prove my, my innocence, man. In 2018, I did go to trial. And I was found guilty. But um, many of my rights were violated during trial. You know, so I appealed my conviction, and my conviction was recently reversed in um, June 2020. So now I'm back, uh, I'm back here on Rikers Island, awaiting a new trial. Prakash insisted that he was innocent during the trial and said his confession was false, that it had been forced out of him by manipulative detectives. So in 2019, he appealed his conviction, which the New York State Appellate Court overturned on the basis that the judge who heard his case, Justice Kenneth Holder, denied Prakash's attorneys their request to present an expert on forced juvenile confessions to the jury. It's a little bit of a complicated story and one we wanted to understand well. When we got the chance to speak with Prakash, we asked him to explain what happened on the day he was arrested. It's crazy because they came to my house. I look, they came to my house on December 9th, 2014, at like approximately 6 a.m. in the morning. Um, they came in my apartment without any warrant, no arrest warrant, no search warrant. Came in there, apprehended me, placed me in cuffs, put me in a minivan. He says that the intimidation tactics by the police start here. Mind you, they had me in a minivan for hours, for about three hours. Mind you, from from where I live to the precinct, the 113 precinct, it's only about uh, maybe a 10, 15 minute drive. It took them three hours to get me to the precinct. He told me that the police kept intimidating him, yelling at him while he was handcuffed in the back of the car. 
Once I get to the prison now, three hours later, they put me in a small room. They call it juvenile room. And I uh, uh, handcuffed one hand and the other cuff, they cuffed it onto a, a bar attached to the wall. Had me there until my mother arrived, which was a couple, maybe two hours later, I'll say, approximately. Um, so once she gets there, they bring me into the interrogation room. And shortly after they uh, come in, then they start asking me all these questions. I, I really did not know what, what they were talking about. I was lost, actually. I was lost. I'm like, I don't even know why I'm here. And, um, eventually after that, I just, you know, they started, you know, using their techniques and tactics. And, you know, I broke down, basically. And at one point in, in, in the interrogation tape, I said, I said, um, I'll say whatever y'all want to hear. Mind you, at the time I was on, I was, I was taking psych medication. I was taking Wellbutrin, you know, because I suffered from depression and anxiety. So um, they definitely, you know, took advantage of me. They didn't allow me to take my medication or anything. So Prakash mentions his mother because she was reported in the press as having helped the police secure his confession to the crime. But let's back up a bit. Without any clear evidence connecting Prakash to the scene of the crime, what led the police to him? Well, Jonathan Legister's mother, Olive Legister, was also in the home during the robbery. She had been held hostage by one of the assailants. When the police questioned her later, she believed that the voice of one of the assailants belonged to Taquan's friend, Prakash. Not much later, the police showed up to the house and took him in. I asked him about the cops who interrogated him. You got these uh, two corrupt detectives that um, interrogated me. What uh, can you tell me their name? You have one minute left. Um, one is named um, Daniel Gallagher. That was the Caucasian one. And uh, you had an African-American one named Barry Brown. Barry Brown was, um, he, he was, he was the one that was, you know, doing all, doing all the cursing and yelling at me. Um, manipulate. He, he did most of the manipulation. The other one, Gallagher, he was just mostly quiet, acting like he was, you know, a friend, but he really wasn't. You know, they both tag team played good cop, bad cop, basically, and um, you know, got a confession, got a false confession out of me. And, um, that is basically what what still has me here, is because you know, if I, you know. Had they not have a confession against me, I, I wouldn't be. There would be no... Thank you for using Securus. Goodbye. Prakash isn't the first person to be treated unfairly by the system, and he knows it. He made this connection between his case and the case of Shannon Lewis, who was charged by the Queen's District Attorney in the case of strangled jogger Karina Vetrano. Lewis's case made news for resulting in a hung jury in 2018 amid concerns that Lewis also gave a false confession. But Lewis's case is more complicated, since the evidence against him is stronger than that of Prakash. But if you took a close look at Lewis's case, you'll see that Detective Barry Brown, the same detective who interrogated Prakash, was the one who secured the forced confession from Lewis. There are other problems with Prakash's case that raise red flags. Besides the intimidation tactics that the cops used, the fact that Prakash has had to wait four years before his trial reminds me of others like him. I'm thinking mainly of Khalif Browder, but also of Pedro Hernandez, Marquise Dixon, and Reginald Wiggins. These are the names of young people of color, all of whom were swallowed up by a criminal justice system that seems as arbitrary in its practices as it is efficient in keeping them behind bars, despite their claims of innocence. And these are the names that have been publicized. There's likely many, many more we don't know about. You're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM. My name is Julian, and we're talking about Prakash Sherman and his fight to prove his innocence and secure his freedom. Let's get back to our segment. 
Though his story didn't get much coverage, the little coverage it did get from the corporate press seemed happy to report that Prakash's mother helped the cops secure his confession and failed to mention that Taquan Clark was Prakash's best friend. I wanted to hear more about how Prakash got caught up with the criminal justice system, so I asked him to tell me a bit about his life before he was arrested for the robbery. Alright, um, so... I was born on June 22nd, 1999 in Guyana, which is located in South America. Um, shortly after, a few years after I was born, my family and I migrated to Florida. And um, after that, you know, my family and whomever they were in contact with to help them get to um, the U.S. Basically, I um, sponsored them and helped them um, become citizens so they could start working and so so on and so forth. After that, I feel um, my mother and father, um, they got divorced. My father was always abusive and he was an alcoholic. So... My mom got tired of it, and they separated. They got divorced. My mom left. She moved and moved. She moved to New York and left me and my little sister with my father in Florida. Prakash and his family immigrated over to the United States when he was very young, and they struggled to find decent jobs and integrate into a country that doesn't take well to immigrants. Facing too many obstacles, Prakash's family fell apart. This was like, I want to say, uh, from ages like six to seven, maybe. Um, and after that, I was just going through it down there in Florida with my father. Like, he was constantly abusing me and um, beating on me. So when I turned like 11 or 12, maybe, um, I called like some children's services down in Florida, and I told him, listen, I don't want to live with my father no more. I want my mother to have custody of me, so I moved to New York now. So now I got to, I got to New York in 2012 with my mother. By now, Prakash is in Jamaica, Queens, with his mom, and he was... I was going to school here and there, but listen, I'm not an angel, so um, sometimes I would cut school, you know, hang out with friends and stuff, but, you know, normal, normal teenage teenage stuff. I asked him how he met Saquon and became friends. When I first moved to the neighborhood, you know, I would see them play basketball and stuff in the park, so I introduced myself, you know, we got to know each other, and, you know, um... Our bond just grew, man. I mean, <laughs> you know, it grew naturally, bro. You know, because it was like two of them. It was two of them. It was Taekwon and his little brother, Tyler. You know, we were all like, you know, same age group, kind of. So, I guess we all could relate. We were young, bro, so. That's how we got to know each other. We got acquainted with each other, you know. Became very, very close friends, man. Right before Prakash was arrested for the home invasion, he had already been caught up in the criminal justice system. I got, um, I was arrested for some minor offense, but it wasn't even some bogus arrest they made. I was like 13 or 14 years old. My mother had called and saying I was running, I was, I was running away from home, and yeah, I came into the, into the um, basement apartment, and um, I think they had found like a little knife or something like that, and um, they had arrested me, and they sent me, uh, sent me to a juvenile facility, and then from there, um, I was sent to a group home, which was located in the Bronx, um, in Hunts Point, so I was there for seven months, so from the beginning of 2014 to like November, I was in a group home in the Bronx. I got released on good behavior in, no, on, in uh, November 2014. 
Prakash is an immigrant youth of color at a time when practices like stop and frisk were waning down. Mayor de Blasio would drastically cut back the racial profiling that Mike Bloomberg championed. But it's not been enough because there are still disproportionate amounts of stop and frisks in community of color. Melinda Katz is the current district attorney for Queens County. But when Prakash was arrested, that position belonged to Richard Brown, who held that position for a stunning 27 years before his death in 2019. As his closest supporters referred to him, Dick Brown was known for his tough on crime positions well after crime rates plummeted in New York City. In 2019, journalist Ross Barkin wrote an article for The Gothamist listing Brown's positions on criminal justice reform. Brown was against the legalization of marijuana and against closing the Rikers Island jail complex. Barkin also wrote that, historically, the Queens DA's office has shown deference to the NYPD, failing to aggressively pursue police brutality cases. Queens prosecutors are unusually punitive, employing tactics unseen in other city offices. In the same piece, Barkin states that assistant district attorneys will join police to interview defendants before they are even arraigned, hoping to secure incriminating statements that will lead to quick convictions. This unique approach by the Queens District Attorney to intimidate defendants before they spoke to their attorney was reported by the New York Times, where journalist Eli Rosenberg wrote that some lawyers said the office's pretrial plea policy was coercive and manipulative. They said that the script used to interrogate suspects before their arraignments, wording that was declared unconstitutional in 2014, was still troublesome despite revisions. These issues have animated many grievances from Queensboro residents. So when Richard Brown resigned, 60 people rallied in the bitter January cold of 2019 to launch a coalition called Queens for District Attorney Accountability. This is a clip from their press conference, which The Independent reported on. For almost three decades, Browns has said that he's going to supposedly give an end to what has been happening in Queens. But the reality is that what he has been doing is to unjustly send to jail the most vulnerable communities in Queens. We know that these policies are fundamentally racist, anti-family, anti-trans queer, anti-woman, anti-black anti-poor and anti-immigrant. We are proud to stand here today as we launch this movement to hold the Queens District Attorney's Office accountable to the demands of the Queens immigrant and people of color communities who have for too long been criminalized and targeted for mass incarceration. When do we want it? Now! If we don't get it, shut it down! There's no doubt that Prakash had to deal with these problematic policies in the Queen's court system, from the police's actions all the way through to the trial. Dick Brown died in 2019, and after a contentious election, Melinda Katz is now the current district attorney for Queens. Now, Melinda Katz didn't really run on a criminal justice reform ticket. Her platform is more politically moderate. To be fair, she did include some reforms that have been a long time coming, such as cash bail, ending prosecution over marijuana, and sentencing reform. I reached out to her office to see if they would comment on Prakash's case. And as I expected, they told me that their policy is not to comment on any ongoing cases. But we had also asked for her position on the current process that oversees a defendant's right to a speedy trial and if she would release Prakash's confession tape to the public. No response to those questions yet, and there likely won't be one. So looking around to see what her positions are, we found an interview she did on the CBS show On The Point, where interviewer Marsha Kramer asked Katz 
what her position was on excessive sentencing by judges. This is how she responded. In that regard, do you think that judges sometimes over-sentence or under-sentence? And do you also think that the laws have to be changed so that the penalties for individual crimes might be shortened? You know, my issue with uh, penalties is that they need to be equitable across. And I think that's part of the problem. People look at those that are being sentenced um, and, and arrested uh, and higher bail, and it clearly impacts people of color more than any, anyone else. And I think that's really the biggest problem, is the equitability across um, the sentencing for the country, but really in New York City as well. I mean, so there should be more sentencing guidelines? There should be more sentencing guidelines, but I think we need to look at what those guidelines are. And, you know, the guidelines are great as long as you uh, take a look, make learned decisions on what those are, and then institute them fairly across the, the justice system. Her answer is similar to her other answers to Kramer's questions. The district attorney is adept at not taking strong positions and will often respond by saying that the issue needs to be looked at further or has to be looked at on a case-by-case -case basis. But she never mentions how her office will further those conversations along. So like I said before, a fairly status quo district attorney. But later on in the interview, Katz answers a question more relevant to Prakash's case. What about outlawing the use of deceptive interviewing techniques to induce confessions? You know, that also goes into the videotape. Can you, should you have uh, videotaped confessions for all the confessions? Number one, I do believe you should have videotaped confessions. But I also believe you need to have corroboration. And I think part of what the Conviction Integrity Unit is going to do, because we are going to have one um, very early in my administration, um, is, going to be looked, is going to look at all of those confessions um, and that the corroborations might not have been as strong as they should be. Okay, so there's an answer. In my opinion, Prakash's confession doesn't have strong corroboration. So at the very least, maybe we can expect the district attorney to direct the Conviction Integrity Unit to look into the way Prakash's confession was secured. But since her office insists on a retrial, this would only happen after he's been found guilty again. <sighs> Prakash has a court date on October 21st. He doesn't think the case will be heard then as the Office of Court Administration will likely continue to postpone his cases sometime in 2021. But for now, Prakash is set to face the same judge, Judge Holder, in his retrial. Having a former prosecutor turned judge who blocked your right to prove your innocence the first time around doesn't sound like Prakash will get that fair trial. But since we're running out of time, we'll have to pick up on Prakash's story on our next show. Seven in the morning, they kicking down my mama's door. Now tell me what is this drama for? Can the get rest at the rest without the stress? Then they put the to my chest. Best think for a twitch or a pop. Off to the clink with this cap. They got a lot like the dread on my head, Jack. And if I try to fight back, well, then I'm dead black. I got the right to an attorney in the state salad. They got the right to try to burn me if I play valid. I know the game, so I just roll with the procedure. A legal search and seizure. Something that they do and that they leisure. Down at the station, interrogation is taking place. Overcrowded jails, but for me to make a space. Tell the devil to his face, he can suck my dick. It's the whole black race that they with. Come to find my crime was letting brothers know the time on the devil and stopping them from eating swine. And plus my prior record sealed my fate. One for all and in God we trust. Got me sent up state. But still I won't bite my tongue. I just write tight to incite the young to fight the one who keeps them on the level that's minimal. And that's the number one That last song was Claiming I'm a Criminal by Brad Nubian. 
You're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM, also streaming on WBAI.org. So due to our limited time, we had to break up Prakash's story into two parts. Part two will air on October 31st. But for now, I'd like to welcome a member of Prakash's support group, Jorgen, onto our show. Hello. Great to be here. Good to have you, Jorgen. So just a little background information. Jorgen is a member of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, often referred to as IWOC. I invited Jorgen to answer a few questions regarding Prakash's case and the broader criminal justice system as he sees it. So let's get into it. Um, Jorgen, first, if you could just tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, um, before, I, before I do that, I'd really just like to give a shout out to Prakash. I know that Prakash is listening to the show. Um, and so Prakash, you know, it's been a while since we've actually been able to talk on the phone. And I'm sorry about that. And I hope that, you know, that we can talk again soon. Um, you know, and I'm really just, you know, here, I'm here because I, I believe you and I want to support you. I'm also here, you know, just to wish you freedom in the most complete sense of the word, uh, freedom from the walls, from the cages, um, you know, from the cops and, you know, just freedom from the system. So, you know, I know you're listening. So, you know, be well, man, keep your head up. And as far as me, my name's Jorgen and I'm part of IWOC NYC. IWOC Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee is a national organization um, that's basically like committed to, you know, the extinction of the, this criminal system that we live under. Like just, we are a prison abolitionist organization. So these kind of conversations with people like Melinda Katz don't really apply to the kind of work that we're trying to do. We're trying to imagine a world uh, without prisons, a world without, that doesn't torture, you know, children like Prakash. Um, so that's what IWOC is all about. Um, and, you know, Prakash is just one of many people that we've been in contact with. These stories, which are so horribly sad, are so uh, horribly common. So this is the problem that we are dealing with. Thanks for that. So let me ask you this. How did you get in touch with Prakash? Yeah, so Prakash um, just happened to meet someone on Rikers who had been in contact with us. And one thing about Prakash is that he will reach out to anyone and has, you know, reached out to you all um, through that. He just kind of like has always like believed that he could create freedom for himself and has always tried, you know, any avenue that's possible. And so, yeah, I was, I started a project recently um, as part of my work for IWOC that is called hashtag prisons kill. And basically what we're trying to do is expose, um, you know, the, basically to create a media platform that creates a, a place for uh, people in prison or people who have gotten out of prison to discuss these these issues on their own terms. Um, so we recorded, you know, something with Prakash, and that's how we met. Prakash and I are the same age. We're both 21 years old, um, and, and like, we just have lived such different lives. You know, he spent the last six years in prison, and this is while I've been in college. You know, I got to study abroad in South Africa. I got to have, you know, wonderful experiences, and I just wish that Prakash you know, had been able to have his own version of that story and he didn't. Um, and so the, that, that fact that we're the same age, you know, his birthday, I think is, is, is June 22nd. My birthday is June 5th. So we're 17 days apart or something like that. And like, you know, I've, I've thought about that a lot and it's like, you know, all the things that I've done in the last six years, he didn't get to do anything. He had to be in jail the whole time. So, you know, there's, there's nothing about that that is acceptable. Thanks for putting that into perspective. I mean, I think, I think just to underscore how difficult and how, how few resources um, prisoners have to self-advocate, um, can, you, can you tell us, like, how does, how does Prakash go about doing the work that he does? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's not really possible for people in prison to really advocate for themselves. Like, it, there's so many barriers. Like, when Prakash calls phone numbers on the phone, like, he can't dial, like, an extension, you know, things like that, which is what you would probably need to talk to most law firms and things like that. Um, so, you know, what you really need if you're, if you're in prison is like a team of people um, to help you and, and to write emails for you and to do all these things. Uh, and that's really like what groups like IWOC do, but we get so overextended because there were literally like 2.3 million people in this situation. So that's, that's, that's like the problem that exists. And, it, you know, it's, it's the problem with, with any form of like advocacy or anything that's trying to help people in prison is that, like the people in there like are just so restricted. So one of the things that we have to do is make like three-way calls, but that's like technically illegal. And so like, if, if they knew that, you know, that we were making three-way calls, then they would crack down on that. So it's like, 
th those are the kind of like issues that exist. And so it really is like you really need to have committed people on the outside where you're not going to get access to justice. Definitely, definitely. And I think that's why having a, a support group like what IWOC does for, for prisoners, I think is so important. If only we could do more and more of that and hopefully grow the ranks of organizations like IWOC. Um, you know, in your view, how does how does Prakash's story speak to the problems of the criminal justice system? I know this is a huge question, but I mean, whatever you can. Yeah, I mean, I think we can think about it this way, right? So this man we were just discussing, Barry Brown, right, is a, is a NYPD detective. He's been a detective, I think, for 25, 30 years, something like that. Um, in 2018, Barry Brown made $121,875. Okay, how much do teachers make? You know, how much do Prakash's teachers make? You know, how much did how much did, the, did all the people along the line that were supposed to be helping Prakash, you know, in his life make? So that's the kind of society we live in, right? We have people that are trained and effective at torturing children into waiving their constitutional rights. That's what happened in Prakash's case. That, that's what that story was about. It was about a, a, a cop, a predator, preying on a 15-year-old boy and getting him to waive his right to the Fifth Amendment, which is not a privilege, it's a right. Like that is, you know, a constitutional right, the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution. So, you know, that's that's like one of the ways of looking at it. Right. Like we we you know, in this city, like we decided to spend, you know, somewhere between eight and eleven billion dollars on the four new jails last last year. Um, and, you know, we, we could end homelessness for a fraction of that. You know, so like like when I was just reading, you know, in Asada Shakur's autobiography, she described, you know, her experience on Rikers Island. She said that if misery had a smell that Rikers Island smelled like that. So why can't we build places where it smells like joy? Why can't we live in a world where, where, where we're trying to, to care for each other and like a more compassionate society where we don't look at justice as vengeance? You know, that's the question, I think. And, and the fact that someone like Barry Brown makes $120,000, you know, to go around torturing children is an outrage. And, it, and it's not just, it's, and that's like, you know, how many people, the, the NYPD budget is, is billions. So that's every year they spend that, you know, on instead of helping people, you know, that that's what's going on. And, and you see, like, 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 I don't know, there's so much more. So definitely, I mean, it, I think it just speaks to the priorities of the city and the state, right, where it's like, let's pour billions of dollars into cracking down on people and creating whole um, agencies and institutions dedicated to doing nothing but just being punitive as opposed to actually investing that money in ways to get at these root causes, right? So it, it's it's wild. And I think, um, you know, my, there's, my next question actually is that, you know, there's been a report by the New York City's Independent Budget Office um, that found that half the people trapped on Rikers Island jail complex were people awaiting trial and who couldn't afford bail. This report came came out in 2017. Is this still the case? Still something that happens on Rikers Island? Yeah, I mean, absolutely is. And I think I think like it's not a secret that you have to have money to 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 play in the United States. Like that's just that's just what goes on. And like I just think the, the idea of, of of bail is just a ludicrous concept, right? It's just a poor tax, and and it just shouldn't we shouldn't you shouldn't have to pay. It's it, basically all these people are being held for ransom. That, that's what it is. And they make, this is how they pay for this budget. Like this is how they, they, you know, they, this is the kind of uh, infrastructure that's put into place to support this kind of system where a cop can make $121,000 a year. So yeah, that's, it's absolutely like someone just said the American way. That's exactly right. <clears throat> yeah. It's like they, it's like the city politicians and the state, they create situations which they can then, create institutions to go after people. And the whole time there's a, there's a pipeline of people who are making money on that, on the, on the perpetuation of these, of these institutions. Um, so let's take a, just a quick um, uh, station ID. You're listening to working class heroes radio right here on WBAI 99.5 FM. We're also streaming on WBAI.org. We're speaking with Jorgen about Prakash Sherman's story. Um, so we want to make sure to leave some time for listeners to call in and to speak with us. So we have probably time for just one more question for this segment, and then we're going to take it over to, to our callers. A very important question, I think, is how can people support Prakash? Yeah, so there's lots of ways people can support. Prakash has all the social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You know, you can get in contact. Like, We just need more people to, to help with this support group. 
Um, you know, there's a GoFundMe set up, which can be accessed on those, those uh, sites. And, you know, Prakash needs, you know, again, like, just like so many other people, like needs a lot of money to, to pay for these different things. Like in this, in this court ruling, like Prakash will be allowed to, to have a, a, an expert witness on juvenile false confessions. Those people are not cheap. And the fact that the state doesn't pay for that in the trial when they didn't allow, you know, the witness to testify before, it's like, that's ludicrous, right? But the fact of the matter remains that we're going to need to do that in this trial um, in order for Prakash to be found uh, innocent. So that's, you know, that's why we have the GoFundMe, you know, obviously, like, there's a continuing issue between Prakash and his lawyer. So there's, like, there's so many things and so many, you know, if you're a powerful person and you're listening to this show, please get in contact because we know that, like, a political strategy or a media strategy can be effective in in making someone innocent, which is not the way that the courts are supposed to be intended to work, but nothing about what it says in the Constitution seems to apply uh, in court whatsoever. So I, I think if you're, you know, able to support or willing to support, please do. There's also a petition um, on change.org, which you can search uh, hashtag free Prakash Charman, um, and you can sign it. Um, and that was another way to sort of support what's going on here. But, there's any number of things um, that could be done to support the college. Yeah, we'll make sure to uh, share those links on our own social media platforms. So folks who follow Working Class Heroes Radio, um, you can make sure to sign the petition, share it on your social media. We want to make sure to get this story as far as we can and to many, as many people as we can. I think we actually have time for maybe one more question. Um, and I think this is an important question, Uh Jorgen, what, what role do you think the media plays in reporting crime stories? Yeah, it's a great question, right? So if you go on the, if you go on the, the, the New York Daily News' website right now and you, you click on New York, the tab for New York stories, like they, they'll tell you stories about New York City. And like I would say, you know, the majority are stories about so-called crime, right? But, but never, like and, and the New York Daily News wrote an article about Prakash, and this is an example. Never do you see like the actual person who's charged with a crime get to speak in the story. So whatever the cops say, and the cops are paid to lie, you know, we know that like, so they, whatever they say that becomes, you know, in the media. And then once it's out in the media, then everyone starts to think that. And so like we saw this in the case of uh, the Bronx 120, um, which was uh, an indictment that indicted 120 uh, young people from the East Chester Gardens neighborhood uh, in the Bronx. And what happened was, is basically like they first came out and said that this was a gang, that they were arresting all these kids and they had been involved in murders and all this stuff. Come to find out that the murders that were connected to the indictment happened when most of the kids were eight years old, like 10 years before. And at that time, they so like, they, but then they used that to basically create so much animosity towards these kids that they were able to convict all of them like on plea deals. And this is why 98% of felony arrests that end in convictions are arranged through plea deals. Now, you know, like to paraphrase, Martin Luther King, you could say somewhere I read about like a, a, uh, a fair and speedy trial, right? Or, and, and a trial, right? But Prakash is being like told by his lawyer not to go to trial and all this stuff. All he wants is what was promised him by the constitution. So, so these are the kinds of questions that like should really raise red flags to you. If you think that the criminal justice system works the way that you were told that it works, you're wrong. Like, and if you, and, it, and you can think about it through Prakash's story, uh, like there's just so many elements of it that point towards just this vile injustice. And the media plays a massive role because they just go along with whatever the cops say. And they don't like, it's so rare to see people um, quoted who are in prison or incarcerated. And when you do see it, you, it always goes with, well, whatever they said, you know, they were also convicted of this crime. So if they say that they're being tortured on a mass scale in the prison, if they say that solitary confinement shouldn't exist, things like that, it gets delegitimized by the fact that they were convicted, but that's not, you know, that's not how we should think as a society. I mean, it's, it's, it's 66 million people uh, that have criminal records in this country, right? That's almost, that's like 15 to 20% of the population. So we need to start talking about this and have this conversation, right? Like, what is it that that means? And why is it that we've created this whole subclass of our society under capitalism? That's so, you know, so disenfranchised and it's, it is legal to discriminate against people with criminal records in this country. And, you know, states have laws that say you can't vote if you were have a criminal record. So how are those people, you know, having access to the American dream, so-called, and democracy, again, so-called? So, you know, there it is. The media plays a big role in that. 
Thanks for that. Um, so we're now going to take a quick musical break, and then we'll be answering the phone. So give us a ring at 212-209-2877. We want to hear from you, what you think of Prakash's case, and thoughts that you may have about the criminal justice system. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. We'll be right back. Okay, so welcome back. This is Working Class Heroes Radio. Gio, I believe we have two callers, right? That is correct. And ready to take the first one? Let's do it. All right, cool. Hello, caller. You are on the air. Please tell us your name and where you are calling from. Hi, my name is Cassian, and I'm calling from Katy, Texas. Hey, Cassie. From Texas, right? Hello? Hey, can you hear me? Yes, I can. All right, so welcome on to the show. Thank you. So tell us, what do you, what's your comment? So I actually grew up with Prakash. He lived right down the block from me, and um, we hung out, and we were pretty close growing up. And um, when I heard about the situation, the full story about it, it was actually four years later I remember just walking past his house and wondering, like, what happened to him. And, of course, I heard stories, but I didn't know what to believe because knowing him, I was just like, how can any of this stuff be true? So then when I finally found him and got in contact with his mom and him and I heard the story, I was so heartbroken because, I mean, who wouldn't? That's, if, that's my friend. Imagine that you're hearing someone who's your close friend just going through a situation like that. It's just very devastating, and um, I think that it's very, very unfair that he had to go through this. And, um, you know, what can I do? All I can do is pray for the best for him to just make it out of there, you know? And I'm so happy that he's being heard right now. Yeah, so much. Uh, we thank you so much for your call. I, Yeah, what you just said was really powerful, and Prakash heard you. I'm certain yeah. of that. Uh, definitely, Prakash, if you're hearing this, I love you, man, and I'm always here for you. And um, I hope that I can be a voice for you as well. Guys, thank you so much. Mad solidarity to folks in Texas. Gio, can we take the next caller? Yes, we can. All right, caller, you are on the air. Please tell us your name and where you're calling from. Okay, my name is Sharon, and I'm calling from North. And this is my question. Um, it was, the young man had talked about uh, the media and how the media plays a role in, in, how, in how the justice system works. And I wanted him to expound on that because I was curious to how, you know, the media was, was perpetuating this, this, this. You know, they say, all of, they, they say how they're about justice, but then they're perpetuating this, 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 this injustice in our community. And I wanted to know how. What are they doing? Sharon, thank you so much for your call. Jorgen, would you mind uh, taking that yeah, question? The, the number one way that the media like does that is just by not allowing people to speak uh, on their cases and on their stories. And, and that is like if you go and you read articles about events that took place, like criminal events that happened in the city, you just do not see quotes from people in prison. And that's not because you can't talk to people in prison, right? They can call you 
you know, if you're a journalist, and it's just it's it's a myth to think that they they don't have access to journalists and that journalists shouldn't have the right to go into into prisons. And that's the number one thing. Like we've just silenced people and we've delegitimized what they say because we attach, you know, well, they're criminals or they're this and they, or they committed a crime or whatever it is. And you know, this is why like my friend uh, Justin. Um, started this project called Hashtag Prisons Kill, which you can find on Twitter at Prisons Kill. Um, and basically the purpose of that was to change this this truth and to do have conversations like we're having right now on the radio because this is the conversation we need to have. We need to empower Prakash's voice and figure out, like, if, you know, like if the story can't get written by the deadline, the deadline has to be extended. Like, that's the kind of stuff, like, people in prison need to have the opportunity to speak. And not just about, not just about, um, you know, their case or whatever, whatever is going on in the prison, they should have the opportunity to speak about any other facet of American life, because they're part of our society. And that's, you know, like, we saw it, like, you know, people like Mumia Abu-Jamal is a journalist, has been in prison for 40 years, right? And, and he, he puts stuff out as a journalist, he continues to do that. But that doesn't get anywhere near the same kind of press and coverage that, you know, other, you know, the corporate media, as we can call them. And so, yeah, the media, like everyone says the media is objective and that they don't, you know, take a side or whatever. They do take a side. The, the media says that you have a choice between Biden and Trump. And that's, you know, the two possible avenues that our society could go down. They've taken a side and they've taken the side of, you know, the fascist state that we live under. Like that's, they've clearly taken a side. And that's, that's how the media supports, you know, the carceral state. Like, and the media, they, Every publication has relationships with the cops, you know, and one of the first things that activists will tell you or people that know about the cops and about the criminal justice system, the first thing they will tell you is do not talk to cops ever. Like, and that's what the media, that's the role that that's the kind of position I think the media should take because the, 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 the system is completely unjust and we need to, we need to create media that work towards abolition in the, the, the form that is expressed. Like that's how I look at it. So I think today this show where we have Prakash's voice and, you know, the man can speak towards the story of his life. That's really powerful. And that's the kind of direction that the media needs to go in. Not more of this, like, well, the cops say he's in jail and whatever. That's not a story. That's biased and that's wrong. And that does not take into account, you know, the fact that this criminal, the criminal justice system in this country is the direct descendant of, of chattel slavery. You know, prisoners work you know, for 15 cents an hour in prison. So, that, and like there's 2.3 of million of them. So anyway, that's the answer. Wow, definitely. I mean, I wish we could talk more about this. We're sort of out of time for today. I want to thank everyone for listening. And we want to give a shout out to all the folks at Working Class Heroes who helped put this show together. Um, also the folks here at WBAI. Thanks, Gio. And of course, to Jorgen and Prakash. Palante, mi gente. We're off next week, but we'll be back with part two of Can't Be a Victim to the System, the Prakash Shuraman story on October 31st. Stay healthy, New York, and good night.